Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. To get this episode of Forensic Tales ad-free, please visit patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. Forensic Tales discusses topics that some listeners may find disturbing. The contents of this episode may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. In the world of healthcare, nurses play a vital role, often referred to as the backbone of medical facilities. Nurses are the ones we turn to on our best days and our worst days. As the saying goes, save one life and you're a hero. Save 100 lives, you're a nurse. We rely on their expertise and their compassion during moments of vulnerability, a relationship based on trust. But what if that trust is violated? What if our saviors become our grim reapers? This is Forensic Tales, episode number 198, The Story of the Killer Nurse. Welcome to Forensic Tales. I'm your host, Courtney Fretwell Ariola. Forensic Tales is a weekly true crime podcast covering real, spine-tingling stories with a forensic science twist. Some cases have been solved with forensic science, while others have turned cold. Every remarkable story sends us a chilling reminder that not all stories have happy endings. As a one-woman show, your support helps me find new compelling cases, conduct in-depth fact-based research, and produce and edit this weekly show. You can support my work in two simple ways. Become a valued patron at patreon.com slash forensictales and leave a positive review. Before we get to the episode, we've got two new supporters this week. Thank you so much to Amy C. and Kaylee L., for becoming the show's newest supporters on Patreon. Now, let's get to this week's episode. Chester is a cathedral city in the county town of Cheshire, England. It's home to the Countess of Chester Hospital, the main National Health Service hospital for the city and the surrounding area. On any given day, the hospital sees all types of patients. Some are simply there for routine appointments with their primary doctors. Others are there for the emergency room because the unexpected happened. And some go to the hospital for one of the biggest moments in life, to give birth to a child. The hospital employs hundreds of workers, from administrative staff to doctors to nurses. Everyone who gets hired there meets all the important standards. They're qualified, experienced in their fields, and caring. 
just the type of person that you would want to care for you when you need it the most. But something started happening at this UK hospital in 2015. Something that was almost stranger than fiction. Babies in the neonatal unit started mysteriously dying for no apparent reason. A baby was born, often premature, placed in the neonatal unit to be cared for by the doctors and nurses. And then they would suddenly die. Sometimes just hours after birth, and they were otherwise believed to be relatively healthy. The strange events went on for months and months. A few employees suspected someone working there might be attributed to the deaths, but they didn't do anything about it. By the time top hospital executives intervened, it was too late. The damage was already done. Innocent infant lives were already tragically lost. Before 2015, this hospital's neonatal unit was like any other in England. A team of about 30 nurses and seven pediatric consultants provided round-the-clock medical care to premature babies. Some were born up to 12 weeks early and weighed about one pound. Most premature babies had a good chance at survival, assuming that they got the care they needed. Studies have shown that fewer than two die for every 1,000 premature babies born in the UK. A reassuring statistics for parents of premature babies. And Countess of Chester Hospital is no different. Of the hundreds of babies that pass through the hospital's neonatal unit in an average year, only between one and three would die. That was it. It would be almost unheard of for an otherwise healthy, premature baby to die suddenly. But those promising statistics were about to change in 2015. Around 8 o'clock p.m. on June 8, 2015, twins were born six weeks premature, a boy and a girl. We'll call them child A and child B to protect their identities, and because that's how all the children are referred to in this case. Despite being premature, both babies seemed healthy. They had relatively strong heartbeats. They were breathing on their own. After a few weeks in the hospital's neonatal unit, they should have been cleared to go home with their parents. But one of the twins didn't make it. Less than two hours after the twins were born, a nurse in the neonatal unit paged a doctor, saying the baby's condition was rapidly declining, and she wasn't sure that child A would make it. She was right. Not long after calling the doctor, child A was dead, with few clues about what happened except for a strange colored rash on his skin. Only 28 hours after child A died, his twin sister, child B, also started having problems and had a similar rash on her skin. Doctors were immediately called to the unit as a nurse reported that the baby had collapsed and wasn't breathing. Fortunately, the doctors had gotten to her in time and she survived. Otherwise, she would have become the second baby in about 24 hours to die in the unit. And her parents would have lost both their babies just one day apart. A few days later, on June 14th, another baby at the hospital was born prematurely, child C. This time, it was a four-day-old baby boy born seven weeks early. 
Child C was so small that he only weighed one pound, 12 ounces when he arrived in the neonatal unit. But he wouldn't be there long. Despite not having any other health conditions other than being born premature, Child C died just a few hours later. Child D died about one week later on June 22nd. This time, it was a baby girl who was only two days old. She collapsed three times while in the neonatal unit and was revived twice. But the third time proved fatal, and she died within a few hours after birth. Similar to child A and child B, the doctors noticed a strange discoloration of her skin. When it came to the deaths of child A, child C, and child D, there was no medical or forensic explanation to really explain what happened, or at least nothing that they could see at the time. They just seemingly collapsed and died with a weird rash on their skin. But other than that, there was nothing unusual. Between June 22nd and July 2nd, tensions among hospital staff were at an all-time high. This particular hospital had never had so many newborn babies die in such a short period of time. It had simply never happened before. So naturally, some of the doctors and nurses started talking. On July 2nd, 2015, Dr. Stephen Breary, the head consultant on the neonatal unit, started looking into the deaths. He didn't have any solid proof just yet, but he suspected that someone working at the hospital was responsible. There was simply no way that this was all just a coincidence or that it was natural. Maybe it was a doctor or maybe it was a nurse. But there wasn't much that he could do without any solid proof or evidence that someone working at the hospital was causing the deaths. He tried talking to the hospital's top executives, but they didn't want to hear it. Without proof, you can't simply blame other nurses or doctors for the babies dying. So he was told to drop all the allegations. Weeks later, on August 4th, another set of twins were born, two boys, child E and child F. Like the others, the twins were born prematurely, They were about seven weeks early, so they were sent to the neonatal unit as soon as they arrived. Child E died later that night from a fetal brain bleed that no one could explain. Then, the next day, child F almost died after his blood sugar and heart rate soared off the charts. Now, luckily for this baby, he survived because the doctors had gotten to him in time to regulate his vitals. Following August 5th, everything was quiet around the unit. There weren't any more suspicious baby deaths. And like a few weeks earlier, the hospital staff wondered if it had stopped. Or whatever was happening was done. But between September 7th and October 23rd, one more baby mysteriously died and two more almost died. Child G, Child H, and Child I. Bring the total to this point to five deaths and four near deaths. By late October 2015, Dr. Stephen Bury was investigating the deaths once again. Although he was told to drop it, he couldn't. And that's when he came across the name Lucy Letby, the common denominator with all the deaths. 
Hey, Forensic Tales listeners, Courtney here. Do you hate listening to ads? Well, you can listen to every single episode of this show ad-free through Patreon, starting for just $3 a month. And what's great? You don't have to change how you listen. You can still enjoy ad-free episodes of Forensic Tales through most podcast apps. As a patron, you'll also get other great perks, like weekly bonus episodes. This is where I give you my reaction to each week's story that I don't share in regular episodes. But more importantly, your support means I can continue to deliver high-quality weekly true crime stories. Don't forget, Forensic Tales is just a one-woman show. If you're interested in learning more, go to patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. That's patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. There's also a link in the show notes. Now, back to the episode. Lucy Letby began working as a registered nurse in the neonatal unit in 2012, and she quickly developed a really good reputation among her coworkers. They described her as reliable. She was hardworking and trustworthy, the kind of coworker that anyone would want to work with. She was always the first one to volunteer to either work overtime or pick up an extra shift on the weekend so that one of her coworkers could take the day off. And as a registered nurse in the neonatal unit, Lucy and the other nurses cared for some of the most vulnerable people on earth, premature babies. Lucy popped up on Dr. Breary's radar because he noticed a pattern. Every time a baby died in the unit, Lucy was working. Sometimes she was their nurse. Other times she was just simply present in the unit when the baby died. So she quickly became the common denominator. Strange coincidence. Or was it? Dr. Breary took his findings to Allison Kelly, the director of nursing at the hospital. He explained that none of the deaths made any real medical sense, and one nurse was always working, Lucy. But even Dr. Breary seemed to have his doubts, because even after he went to the director of nursing with his concerns, he even said to her, it can't be Lucy. Not nice, Lucy. It wasn't only Dr. Breary who started looking into the deaths. Dr. Ravi Giaram did too. Like Dr. Breary, he went to the hospital's management staff, expressing his concerns about the dying babies and Lucy. He even told them that he saw Lucy with his own eyes standing over a baby whose breathing tube had been dislodged. When she saw that the baby's oxygen levels were dropping, he said that she did nothing to try to stop it. It wasn't until other doctors intervened that the baby's levels started returning to normal. But even after two separate doctors went to management, nothing was done. Both doctors were basically told to get back to work and that everything was fine. Lucy was allowed to keep working in the unit despite a dark cloud of suspicion hanging over her head. Lucy also had her fair share of supporters and friends. They just couldn't believe that she was responsible, or they just didn't want to believe it. 
Her coworkers described her, again, as a reliable and hardworking person, while others described her as just another nurse, someone who basically flew under the radar. One of her colleagues told The Guardian this, quote, She didn't stand out as a particularly bad nurse. She didn't stand out as a good nurse either, excelling really in anything, end quote. The hospital's neonatal unit manager was one of the first staff members to notice that Lucy was always on duty when a baby died, and even she couldn't believe it. She always thought that Lucy was an exceptional nurse. She had a great attention to details, how she described her. So although that she noticed that Lucy was always working when a baby died, she just simply hoped that it was a coincidence. Some of Lucy's coworkers said that they felt bad for her because she was just so unlucky to have so many babies die while under her care. Now, fast forward to February 2016. In 2016, Dr. Breary completed a full review of the deaths of five of the babies. In his report, he said the only common denominator in the case was Lucy. There was no other medical or forensic explanation or link between all of the deaths, just Lucy. So Dr. Breary emailed his report to the hospital's medical director and labeled it urgent, hoping that they would finally do something about it. Management agreed to review the report this time, but they wouldn't schedule the meeting until May of 2016, over three months later. But before they could meet, more babies almost died while Lucy worked in the unit, including another set of twins in April, child L and child M. News about all the babies dying spread farther than just the hospital walls. Different organizations across the UK reported that the neonatal death rate rose at least 10% higher than expected between June 2015 and June 2016. The death total in 2015 doubled that of the previous year. The deaths were becoming a human crisis. A few weeks after Dr. Beery proposed the meeting with hospital management, Lucy was switched from the night shift to the day shift. New hospital trainees started calling Lucy the angel of death after they heard about the deaths. Now, it was no secret that Lucy was a suspect and was around each one of these babies right before they died. But for unknown reasons, nothing was done. The deaths and the near deaths continued despite being transferred to the day shifts. On May 11th, Dr. Breary and the hospital executives finally met to go over everything. But the meeting didn't go as planned. Instead of taking his concerns about Lucy seriously, they did the exact opposite. And they attributed to deaths to other factors at the hospital. According to an article published by The Guardian, they said, quote, There was no evidence whatsoever against Lucy Letby other than coincidence. End quote. So, back to the beginning. The last two babies died a few weeks later in June 2016, child O and child P. 
Both of the boys had been born as part of triplets just days earlier. Child O was scheduled to go home just hours before he died on June 23rd. After his death, a forensic pathologist noted an abnormal amount of gas in his body and liver damage that an independent pathologist would later rule had resulted from, quote, an impact injury similar to a car crash. Child P was also moments away from being discharged when he suddenly collapsed and died. X-rays later showed a tremendous amount of gas in his body, like his twin brother. The deaths of Child O and Child P seemed to be the tipping point for what happened next. Because after these deaths, Dr. Breary picked up the phone again and called Karen Reese, a top executive at the hospital, and told her that Lucy needed to be removed from the unit. Now, initially, this top executive said that Lucy was fine to stay in the unit and that if anything bad happened while she was working, she was happy to take full responsibility. That's how much management wanted to believe in Lucy. It basically had become a witch hunt against her. Or maybe they were just trying to protect their reputation. Because what hospital wants people to think that they hire nurses who kill premature babies? At this point, the hospital had to make a decision. They could either ignore what people were saying about Lucy and write it off as a coincidence. Or they needed to go to law enforcement and tell them what was happening. Because if Lucy was really killing these babies, they needed to report it. They decided on option one, keep quiet and let Lucy continue to work. Over the next three weeks, hospital management was pressured to remove Lucy from the unit And the pressure finally seemed to work, at least a little. A few weeks later, Lucy was removed from the neonatal unit and given a clerical job in the hospital's risk and patient safety office until the hospital decided to do anything else. She wasn't fired. She still had a job. She was just temporarily reassigned. And the suspicious death stopped. But Lucy didn't want to be transferred. She wanted to stay in her unit. So in September 2016, she filed a formal grievance to the hospital's board asking for her position back. She claimed the transfer was unjustified because there was no evidence against her when it came to the dying babies. It had all become a big, bad witch hunt. Lucy's parents, John and Susan Letby, were also furious when they found out that their daughter had been removed from her unit. Lucy and her parents had always been really close, and when they found out about her being accused of killing babies, they were furious. So Lucy's dad, John, contacted the hospital's chief executive, Tony Chambers, and expressed his frustration with how the hospital was handling Lucy's situation. And for some reason, Tony Chambers completely agreed with John Letby. Even though doctors and nurses had been complaining about Lucy and warning them about the situation for months at this point, Tony Chambers decided that Lucy should be allowed to return to the unit in January 2017, 
and assure John, Lucy's father, that the doctors who accuse Lucy of killing the babies would be addressed. In their decision, Tony Chambers and the hospital board said, quote, her removal from the unit had been orchestrated by the consultants with no hard evidence, end quote. And they recommended she be returned to the unit and even offered a placement at Alder Hay Children's Hospital in Liverpool so that she could have a fresh start at a different hospital. But this decision didn't go over well with anyone else. When all the other doctors who raised concerns about Lucy heard about the hospital's chief executive was allowing Lucy to return back to the unit, they started raising hell. So much so that at one point, Lucy's father, John, threatened to have all of them reported to the General Medical Council if they wouldn't allow Lucy back in the unit. Eventually, the other doctors were forced to write an apology letter to both Lucy and John in February of 2017. But even though they wrote this I'm sorry letter, they maintained that she shouldn't be allowed to be back in the unit. One month later, in March of 2017, consultants went back to management saying they really needed to go to the police about Lucy. This was after they received advice from the regional neonatal lead that further investigation needed to be done about the deaths. Finally, by May 2017, after months and months of pressure, the hospital board publicly announced that they had involved the police. But they insisted that they only did so so that the rumors about Lucy would finally be put to bed. They wouldn't actually admit that they did it because they thought that she did something wrong. They were just trying to put the rumors to bed. Now, during this time, the police's investigation into the deaths was called Operation Hummingbird, and it involved all types of evidence, from medical records to autopsy reports to independent forensic pathologist opinions and interviews with Lucy's coworkers. And the entire investigation lasted months. And during that time, not one single baby mysteriously died in the unit. Operation Hummingbird was successful. Lucy Letby was finally arrested a little more than one year later on July 4, 2018, on suspicion of eight counts of murder and six counts of attempted murder. Later that day, her parents' house was searched by the police. The Liverpool Women's Hospital was also searched because Lucy had previously worked there, and the police wanted to find out if there were any more suspicious cases. At this point, the police believed their investigation had widened to 17 deaths and 15 near deaths between March of 2015 and July of 2016. Lucy remained in custody for a few days before bailing out on July 6th. But when she was in custody, the police uncovered some very disturbing documents inside her bedroom. Ever since she was a kid, Lucy kept a diary. And when the police searched her apartment, they found her diary, which seemed to contain incriminating evidence. According to the police, the diary contained what they described as a secret code to record the dates of the baby's deaths. 
Next to almost every one of the dates when a baby died, Lucy had written a star next to it. She also used various other symbols to represent what the authorities believed were dates that she considered significant. And they just so happened to correspond with the dates the babies died or almost died. When Lucy bailed herself out of jail, she continued to write in her diary. And later on, when the police returned to search her bedroom for a second time, they found even more incriminating notes. On one scratch piece of paper, Lucy described herself as a horrible, evil person and said, quote, I did this, possibly referring to the murders. On another green post-it note found inside her bedroom, she wrote, quote, I killed them on purpose because I'm not good enough. I will never have children or marry or know what it's like to have a family, end quote. Even more damning evidence. Lucy was arrested for the second time on June 10th, 2019 at her parents' house. And this time, she was charged with eight murders and nine attempted murders. But she was once again released so the police could obtain additional evidence in the case. They really wanted to make sure that they had all their ducks in a row. Between her second arrest on June 10th, 2019, and her third and final arrest on November 10th, 2020, the police collected thousands of pieces of evidence. There was so much evidence that the prosecutor couldn't even use it all. So they focused on the most important pieces of evidence, the medical and forensic evidence. When Lucy was arrested for the third and final time in November 2020, she was denied bail and made her first court appearance two days later. At the court appearance, Lucy denied every charge against her and claimed that she would have her own explanation for why the babies were dying. According to her, so according to Lucy, the hospital where she was working had terrible standards when it came to hygiene, and that was partially to blame for the deaths. She also said that the hospital was extremely understaffed at the time, making it, again, impossible to properly care for the babies. So she insisted that she had nothing to do with the cause of any of the deaths, and she basically blamed it on the hospital because they were understaffed and didn't properly teach their staff how to keep clean or maintain proper hygiene standards. Lucy remained in custody for almost two years before her trial was set to begin in October 2022. But the day before it was scheduled to start, Lucy was transferred prisons. And during the move, her medications were lost, which, according to her barrister, Benjamin Myers KC, this was extremely traumatizing for her. So the trial was delayed another week so that psychiatrists could reevaluate her and get her her medication. Once Lucy was officially cleared, her trial got underway at the Manchester Crown Court, where she officially pleaded not guilty to the murders of seven babies and the attempted murder of 10 others. These were the only cases the prosecutor could prove at the time, but they insisted that there might be additional charges later once they had all the evidence. The entire trial lasted nine months, and her parents, John and Suzanne, were sitting behind her every single day. 
There was so much evidence to go through and so many victims. So if the prosecutor was going to secure a conviction, they needed to explain how each and every one of the babies died and how Lucy did it. Because if there was any doubt that Lucy did it, she could walk free. So the forensic and medical evidence needed to be strong. Like in the years leading up to the trial, all of the children's names were kept confidential, and each one of the alleged victims were referred to as child A, B, C, and so on. The trial was also attended by many of the surviving children's parents who wanted to see justice for their children, and because many of the survivors were left with permanent disabilities. Throughout the trial, there was one overarching theme, how unremarkable Lucy Letby's life really was. She certainly didn't fit the profile of one of UK's most prolific female serial killers, or accused serial killers. She was often described as a normal nurse who lived an ordinary life. But clearly, there was a side to her that no one else saw. Jurors were shown pictures of Lucy as a child holding teddy bears, and they learned about all the fun things she did growing up as an only child to her parents. When she got hired at the hospital, her coworkers loved her. She was reliable and a hard worker. Lucy had even been featured on one of the hospital's campaign posters for the neonatal unit. She also wasn't short of friends or a social life. She spent holidays in Ibiza sipping on champagne with friends and took salsa dancing lessons on the weekend. But according to the prosecutor, she was living a double life. Just two days after she returned from holiday in Spain with some friends, she murdered two babies. During the trial, the prosecutor presented evidence that Lucy sent text messages after several of the baby's deaths. After one of them died, she sent a text to a friend saying, quote, How do such sick babies get through, and others just die so suddenly and unexpectedly? End quote. In another text, right after child L and child M collapsed, she said, quote, Work has been shit but I just won 135 pounds on Grand National. Unpacking party sounds good to me with a flavored vodka, end quote. It was like she wasn't even phased by what had just happened. But Lucy's internet searches were probably even more disturbing than the text messages. After many of these babies died, Lucy went online and looked up information either about the baby's family or their parents. For instance, the day after child A died, Lucy went on Facebook and searched for the baby's parents. She also did the same with child I's mother, the parents of twins child E and child F. She did that search on Christmas Day 2015. And she didn't stop there. Not only would she look up the parents online right after the baby died, but she would go back months and even years later. In many cases, she went back to the parents' Facebook pages on the anniversary of their child's death. One of the biggest parts of the trial was how the prosecutor would explain exactly how Lucy did it. 
How was she able to kill so many babies and almost kill so many more without making it incredibly obvious? Sure, other doctors and nurses had suspected her because she was the only one working at the time or she was always working at the time. But how did she do it? Well, here's what the prosecutor had to say. She had two different ways to kill them. Number one, she injected air into their bloodstream. And number two, she used insulin. When it came to child A, the prosecutor alleged Lucy had injected air into his bloodstream, causing the odd discoloration of his skin. Then less than two hours later, she searched on Facebook for his mom. Child B, who survived, was the twin sibling of child A, had likely also been injected with air. An independent pathologist found that child C suffered cardiac arrest after his breathing became compromised. The prosecution said Lucy had injected air into his stomach through a nose tube. Child D was also injected with air. When it came to child F, the prosecutor said she used insulin to poison the baby, causing its death. Child G also died after Lucy forced both air and milk into the baby with a syringe. The baby managed to live, but was left, quote, severely disabled. Child I, child L, and child M were almost killed. Lucy tried to force feed milk and air to child I and used insulin on child L and child M. Fortunately, in these instances, the babies fully recovered. When selecting her victims, the prosecutor alleged Lucy carefully selected who was next. They weren't random killings. Almost every single one of her victims had other vulnerabilities, like extreme prematurity or inherited conditions that gave her plausible deniability when they died. This wasn't done at random, according to the prosecutor. Lucy knew this when she selected them. It was all part of her sick and twisted plan. On top of the medical and forensic evidence, the prosecutor also had witnesses. One of the hospital's consultants testified that in February 2016, he walked into the neonatal unit and saw Lucy standing over a baby and watching as they stopped breathing but didn't do anything about it. It wasn't until that consultant intervened that the baby was saved. Other consultants testified that they also raised concerns about Lucy to the hospital executives but they were told to, quote, not make a fuss about it. Another testified that just one hour before one of the babies died, Lucy said, he's not leaving here alive, is he? Lucy's defense was that this entire thing was a witch hunt, and it was merely bad luck that all of these babies died while under her care. They even tried to explain some of the deaths by saying that they could have been caused by an incorrectly placed tube or wire. But most importantly, they talked about Lucy's character, the quote-unquote nice Lucy that everyone around the hospital came to know and love. How could nice Lucy do something like this? When it came time for Lucy to take the stand and testify, 
The jury watched as she cried and became emotional about everything. She said she might have been a bad nurse, but she didn't do anything to harm these babies. When the prosecutor asked her about the notes she made in her diary, saying, I am evil and I did this, she said she just felt like she must have done something wrong. She must have been just such a bad nurse for so many babies to die. But she was adamant it wasn't on purpose. Lucy's overall behavior and demeanor on the stand was strange. She was emotional, but only when she asked questions about herself. She didn't really seem to shed a tear when it came to questions about the dead babies. She only seemed to cry and become emotional when the prosecutor directed questions about herself, not the babies. After a nine-month trial on July 10th, 2023, the jury was sent to start deliberations. But the verdict wouldn't become public until over a month later on August 18th. As many people expected, Lucy Letby was found guilty of seven counts of murder and seven counts of attempted murder. She was found not guilty on two counts of attempted murder, and the jury couldn't decide on the six other charges against her. The verdict officially made Lucy the most prolific serial killer of children in modern British history. On August 21st, 2023, Lucy was sentenced to life imprisonment with a whole life order, the most severe sentence under English law. She became only the fourth woman in UK legal history to receive that sentence. Under English law, Lucy was allowed to speak at her sentencing hearing, but she chose not to. So no one got to hear directly from Lucy since she took the stand during her trial. But her days in court might not be over. About one month after she was sentenced, she filed an appeal on September 15th, 2023, just a few weeks before this episode is coming out. Another court hearing is scheduled for the prosecutor to decide whether or not to retry Lucy for the six outstanding counts of attempted murder that the jury couldn't decide on. The only person who knows the real motive behind the murders is Lucy herself, and I don't think we'll ever hear from her. But at her trial, the prosecutor presented his own theory about a possible motive. According to him, she did it for the thrill. She enjoyed playing God when it came to these premature babies. She was the one who got to decide whether they lived or died. Then there was Lucy's alleged relationship with a married doctor she worked with at the hospital. According to the prosecutor, she was trying to gain his attention because when one of the babies was dying, he was the one that she called to come help. She would even text him nonstop just minutes before the babies died. Among all the diary entries and notes inside her bedroom, the police found one that seemed to declare her love for this married doctor and said how much she trusted him and needed him. But these are just theories. Possible explanations for why so many innocent babies were killed. The only person who knows the real motive behind the murders is Lucy, the nurse who was once simply known as Nice Lucy. 
That is, until medical and forensic evidence finally unveiled the truth. Because this is a very recent case and more details are uncovered almost every day, I'll continue to follow the story and bring any major updates to you in a future episode or on the show's Patreon page. To share your thoughts on the story, be sure to follow the show on Instagram and Facebook. To find out what I think about the case, sign up to become a patron at patreon.com slash forensic tales. After each episode, I release a bonus episode where I share my personal thoughts and opinions about the case. Don't forget to subscribe to Forensic Tales so you don't miss an episode. We release a new episode every Monday. If you love the show, consider leaving us a positive review or tell friends and family about us. You can also support the show through Patreon. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Please join me next week. We'll have a brand new case and a brand new story to talk about. Until then, remember, not all stories have happy endings. Forensic Tales is a Rockefeller audio production. This show is written and produced by me, Courtney Fretwell Ariola. For a small monthly contribution, you can help create new compelling cases for the show, help fund research, and assist with production and editing costs. For supporting the show, you'll become one of the first to listen to new ad-free episodes and snag exclusive show merchandise not available anywhere else. To learn about how you can support the show, head over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Forensic Tales, or simply click the support link in the show notes. You can also support the show by leaving a positive review or tell friends and family about us. Forensic Tales is a podcast made possible by our Patreon producers, Tony A., Nicole G., Christine B., Karen D., Nancy H., Sherry A., Michael D., Nicola, Jerry M., Brian W., Natasha K., Jerry L., and Megan G. If you'd like to become a producer of the show, head over to our Patreon page or send me an email at Courtney at ForensicTales.com to find out how you can become involved. For a complete list of sources used in this episode, please visit ForensicTales.com. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Until then, remember, not all stories have happy endings.